Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to day two of the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Matt Cabrera. I'm a second year MBA student at MIT, and I'm happy to present today's panel, Moneyball to Homerball. Today's panelists will include Tom Tango, senior data architect for the MLB, Bill James, statistician, historian for uh, baseball, and our panel will be moderated by Megan Chaika, the co-founder and CEO of Stathletes. Today's panel will be 45 minutes, followed by a 10-minute Q&A session. If you would like to su submit a question, you can submit it on Twitter through the hashtag Homerball. And with that, I'll hand it over to Megan. Thank you. Well, welcome. Thank you for showing up at 8.30 on Saturday. I know that's a bit tricky sometimes, but you are in the Bill James room with Bill James. So, of course, it'll be a great panel. Really looking forward to two baseball experts. So arguably, the two greatest baseball analytics minds of all time meet on a stage for the first time. So it's going to be a treat to hear you know, about Sabre metrics that Bill James created and Tom has revolutionized. Bill needs no intro. As you know, this room is named after him. And Tom is the creator of Sabre metrics and currently runs the highly influential TangoTiger.com. So without further ado, I'd like to discuss really high level I mean, a lot of us have seen Bill speak before here, but I'd kind of like to rewind. So what was kind of the initial um, you know, trajectory of your career? And was there any turning points that you thought, OK, this is the year that analytics is taking off? Um, <clears throat> analytics has taken off and taken off again and taken off again and taken off again. So <laughs> there are actually several years. And there have been many times that I thought, it can't get any bigger than this, uh, and it just keeps doing that. So, uh, of course, at the moment, we can't see whether there's anyone out there or not, so it's possible everybody left the room as soon as we heard <laughs> lots of Anyway, the, uh, 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 I started doing what I do because nobody else was doing it, and that seemed to me strange. Uh, it seemed to me that, at the time, very, very strange that people would assert uh, generalizations about the game that no one ever stopped to test and see whether they were true. Uh, it was a common saying that a baseball player's peak was ages 28 to 32. And you don't have to study it very hard to know that isn't true. Uh, you just you know, kind of glance at the data and, oh, that's not right. The, uh, uh, it seemed odd that people would, would say things and they would care enough about the issue to say things about it, but not care enough to check and see whether it was true. So I started doing that. And no idea in the world that, I, I knew that there were other people like me who were interested in this, but I had no idea in the world that it was so many of them. Right, and Tom, I know on uh, Twitter, your bio says, you know, as far as we progress, the, the goal post or the end zone keeps getting farther and farther away. Can you talk about your career and how that makes sense within it? Yeah, <clears throat> every time I, try to find something. It's just for myself. I just have a little question. I look for something and I find it and then I see that, oh, wait a minute, there's still more to it. And then we, I look at that and it's like, oh, wait a minute, there's still even more to it. So you keep looking and looking and you realize that, you know, the island that you're trying to reach is a lot farther than you think it is. Can you maybe frame that with an example of maybe a research question? Good. Can I jump in there? Sure, go ahead. The, uh, <laughs> I never <laughs> say no, Bill. <laughs> when, when I was in grade school, we had this, this uh, a school teacher who had gone to, this is how old I am, he had gone to the college just after World War I. And uh, he said that his, his college science teacher, again, a different world where you would have a college science class. The, uh, but his college science teacher said, you guys are studying science at the right time because everything is known now. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, and we went through a phase in this field where I would hear that exact thought phrased with different words all the time. We'd say, okay, uh, now that everybody knows this stuff, the competitive advantage in it is lost, which it's the same idea. We don't know everything. You just, as Thomas say, you, you find one thing and then you go on and there's another thing and there's another thing. 
Yeah, that's the great thing about this community is that you share and then you re it just like opens up the door. Oh, wait a minute, he did this. This now gives me like three different questions I can follow. And everyone is just leveraging off each other. So I agree with Bill. There's not really that competitive advantage that if you just keep it to yourself, because that one thing that you're keeping to yourself is preventing you from like five other things that you can learn. Right. And others will be able to help you do that. That makes sense. And I think too, as the game evolves, as technology, fans' interest involves, you know, the game changes, rules change. Um, I know, Bill, you've wrote a lot about different rule changes, such as like, you know, changing the pace of play through various ways. Right. What is maybe one rule change that you think could be implemented that people in this room might not be, you know, top of mind? The, uh, uh, it would help the game quite a bit if you would just move the batter off the plate by a couple of inches. It's, if you watch a game now as opposed to uh, back in my day, no, back to when I was a kid, the uh, batters stand much, much closer to the plate because they're trying to drive the outside pitch. If you move them back off the plate, then the percentages change uh, to favor the guy who's maybe not trying to kill the outside pitch, and you wind up with more balls in play. It may not be intuitive, but if you think it through, you realize that, well, it'd be interesting if you disagree with me, but, the, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, that's, a, that's what I think. A similar thing to that is using a, is a bat, the bat has a, uh, a maximum thickness, but no minimum thickness. There should be a minimum thickness there, and that also would help the game if you required a minimum thickness in the game because it would stop people from using these uh, top-heavy bats that you, that you try to get as much momentum at the end of the bat as you can. Well, what's interesting about rule changes is that <coughs> the majority are against rule changes. Whatever the rule change is, they're just <laughs> against it. And, and I, I uh, tweeted some minor rule change and I figured I could get like most of the people on board. Might have been like just drop the mound by two inches. Something no one's going to notice at all. And you know, the majority was against it. I told this to Bill. I said, you know, it's impossible. And Bill said, I can find you 10 rules that I can get the majority to agree. And the first one he tried was move the batter's box two inches. And the majority was against it. Whereas like 80% against it. Like, no. I love your Twitter polls though, because they actually show what people feel. Do you feel like that kind of reflects a bit of like the analytics community versus the traditionalists? No one wants to change the rules or see new metrics because they're just a pushback, right? Right, there's always a pushback. There's like that one third that doesn't want to change any rule, whatever it is. So like, let's say the intentional walk. It was two thirds was against it. But one week later, two thirds after implementation, two thirds are for it. And it's just because that's they, some of them just need to see the rule in place, and some are already like on board, and then there's another group that will never like it, whatever. And, and I use the, it, this is your idea, but I, I use it all the time, that the, the question to ask is, if this was the rule, and we were talking about going back to the other way, how would you feel about that? And there are a lot of like man, minor tweaks to baseball that if they were, if we did them the way they should be done, and you, people talked about going back to the way we do it now, people would be horrified. <laughs> uh, but, it, but it is getting better, and it is getting better because of you guys. It's getting better because as the analytics movement grows and grows and grows, more and more people become receptive to, you know, fixing things that are obviously broken. And I think the youth too. I mean, we're demanding. I think just faster. Um, more engaging type of content. And I think that translates a little bit into baseball, right? In terms of right. when we talk about pace of play or length of game or different types of rules that do slow down uh, the game, whether it's pitching changes. Right. What do you think of the new rules that are coming in uh, this season? How do you think that will affect teams both analytically, maybe changing strategies, and also just overall for the feel of, of baseball? Well, one of, the, one of them is the, uh, the minimum three batter facing. So one of the things that no one likes is when the manager pulls the reliever in the middle of an inning, and then you, go, you cut to commercial, and you know, there's like a lot of time that like nothing is happening. So it's not a matter of the length of the game, it's the amount of dead time right. in the game. So uh, anything you can cut would be great. I don't mind when they do that once, you know. <laughs> it's the second time that it gets you. The, uh, but. But with that type of a, a rule change, do you think that then maybe eliminates or changes like what a lefty reliever that would come in and just throw for one batter? How does, you know, 
How does that change how those players are now redistributed or used? Uh, well, you know, before like the last 10 years or 20 years, that was never an issue, right? No one ever thought about this is the left-handed one-out guy. Right. But then somebody started it and then somebody else started it and it's like, okay, now we have the left-handed one-out guy. And is that really the best thing for, for baseball? Like to have 25 guys and like that's the one guy. Like in hockey, it would be like a shootout specialist. Is that really what you want? <laughs> And for that, too, it's like, you know, how uh, with pitching does the automatic strike zone that they're trying to test in, you know, Arizona fall ball and other leagues, what does that look like for, you know, the future of the game in terms of you know, the perception for some fans that are watching it? You know, there's strikes now that look like balls or maybe were called balls in the past. Um, how does technology impact that? And what does the rules lo look like around you know, that change? Uh, well, what's interesting is that, you know, the, the strike zone box that you see, uh, fans were, some fans were against that. So not even like the change of the rule, just simply the presentation of the pitches. And, but now I can't imagine watching it without it because it's really, really cool to see those pitches uh, thrown right at the edge and being, and being called a strike. Um, so the issue now that's going to be is, you know, you have some fans who are against the technology and some fans that just want to get the calls right. So you have like this balance of, okay, how do you serve both groups? And you're trying to do it in a, in a way where, you know, you're trying to improve fan engagement. So that's the whole purpose of it is how can we like improve this? And uh, so, you know, th there are going to be a lot of challenges to it, um, like how to implement a strike zone the, the true definition of a strike zone, it's uh, the 3D volume over the plate. But how do you represent that to the fan in a 2D experience? Right. right? So if it cuts uh, behind the front of the plate and it's a strike, when we show the pitch, we're showing it at, as it crosses the plate, so it makes it look like a ball, but we're not showing it that it clips. Uh, you know, you'd have to do that 360 view to be able to see it. And do you think with like StatCast and on the broadcast, it'll become more clear and just maybe you know, in stadium, it's a bit of a different experience having something, you know, automatic like that. Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be a, a challenge for, for everyone to how to present this. But, uh, you know, at, at some point, everyone is, when everyone's on board, uh, then everyone's going to want to improve it and make sure everyone is, you know, enjoying the same experience everyone else is. And there's going to be that moment early in the year when a ball bounces across the plate <laughs> and... and the automated zone says, that was a strike. <laughs> well, as well with stack cast challenges, I know we were talking about, you know, competitive runs and competitive throws. And the challenge with that as well is how do you define what that is? Um, maybe, Tom, you could talk through that. And Bill, you can maybe jump in on, you know, what you think about those type of metrics and how you can measure them uh, appropriately for baseball. Right. So you would think it's easy enough to just figure out how fast is a guy running. But uh, unlike the 100-meter race where everyone is trying all the time, you're not always trying all the time with baseball. So now you're trying to find those competitive run situations. So a pop-up to the outfield, uh, the runner's not really motivated or incentivized to go there in four seconds as opposed to five seconds because he's going to be out anyway. So it's a, it's a, you know, a difficult uh, problem to try to figure out. And for things like a throwing arm, that's even more complicated because 90% of the throws are like not max effort. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Bill, about that? You know, how is it, how can you reflect the player's actual, you know, attributes when maybe they're not always competitive and there's, you know, inability with technology to understand that as well? The, uh, all I really know about that for sure is that we will get it wrong several times before we get it right. The, uh, uh, and there's an argument I've had with people in my field for, there, there are a lot of arguments you can never win with a scout, you know, so there's no point in having them. The, uh, uh, and that's not put down on scouts, you know. They have the same perspective as, as we do. I mean, they, they have, they're saying there's a lot of arguments you can never win with those analytics guys. They've tried. The, uh, uh, but one of them is you measure a runner going first to third on a single, right? And, and we count how often a runner goes first to third on a single. But people always want to find a reason to exclude this one or exclude that one. 
reality is if you don't exclude any of them and you just look at how often the guy goes first to third on a single, you have a very good stat. But when you start excluding, for example, we won't count this one because there was a runner on second base ahead of him. So although actually the percentage of time a guy goes first to third on a single is a little bit higher when there's a runner on second because the runner on second tends to draw a throw to home plate. The, uh, what I've been trying to tell people for 30 years is don't exclude any of them. Just define it as how often he goes first to third on a single and you're, and you're good. But people still... People still want to focus on, oh, we've got to look at the ones that go to right field as opposed to, because if, nobody, if you had a single to left in Fenway, nobody ever goes first to third on a single. So, Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, right, to look at the whole sample size and everything that you have, and then, you know, you can determine from different ways of what's competitive. One, one year, Prince Fielder went 0 for 40 on going first to third on a single. Also, kind of going more high level on that, um, you know, how do you decide what to research? So 20, 30 years ago, how did you pick certain topics? And how has that evolved to now, what are you going to research in 2021? What does, you know, BAM want to research? Uh, the way I started to do the research is I looked at what other people have done and tried to expand on it. So half of my research was just whatever Bill wrote and then <laughs> just try to figure out what else, like he might have been uh, looking at that he didn't answer at that point. So that's a lot of my ideas are just like offshoots of other people's ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, but then every now and then I come up with like something that might be novel and I just try to, you know, go along on that on that route. Bill, how about you? How has that evolved from the early days to what you like to look at now? Oh, it hasn't evolved at all. I'm exactly the same as I always was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, I can confess it's kind of failing because it never hurt me, right? The, uh, but I'm very undisciplined. It's like I get up in the morning and this is what I'm interested in, so this is what I work on. And, uh, and there's a huge downside to that because I often don't finish. I mean, it's very common for me to put two weeks into a research project and then just get interested in something else and I never get back to the thing I was interested in at first. And this drives my regular readers kind of nuts because I start something <laughs> and then I, I don't finish it. But it's... <laughs> If I was a disciplined person, I would have gone into some job when I was 25 years old that I could make more money at, so I wouldn't be doing this anyway. So, Yeah, I do the same as Bill. Uh, the one thing that I try to do is write down what I'm doing so that a month later, uh, when I, I have like some free time, I can go back and see, oh yeah, I did start this, let me go you know, continue it and see if I can finish it off. And do you start with like a question or a burning topic, or do you look at a data set and then kind of go from there of something that's maybe of interest there um, has to be in the a community? Question. You, you have to be pursuing a question or you don't, and this is just my experience. If you're, not, if you're just looking at data and trying to find something interesting, you know, my experience, you're wasting your time. You, you have to have a question in your mind that you're trying to answer in order to make sense of the data. Right, like a lot of people will look at data and will say, what does this data mean? And maybe they'll find something and, and then that's it. There's like nothing else. That's like the, the end of the road. But if you ask a question, then you start looking at data and then that's going to lead you down a, a path and maybe it's going to start moving you around. Uh, so I agree with Bill that that's really what you're after. And what are some of maybe the, the top questions that you feel like you've done a great job in your research over the years? sort of high level for maybe some of the students that haven't read some of the different, you know, reports or type uh, of? Well, I, I guess uh, one is something I, I call leverage index, uh, which is simply to try to assign uh, a weight to every situation in a game and say how crucial is it? Uh, uh, how much will it impact the, the, the chance of winning the game? So this is something that everyone's already known. Uh, Bill knew about it and uh, Pete Palmer uh, knew about it, but they never actually published it in a way that's, let's say, consumable uh, for like everyone to be able to, you know, to be able to see every single situation. I, I could never get there. Right. That is a, a wonderful piece of research that you've done, and it's very useful to all of us. And I, I thought about that issue and maybe worked on it for two weeks and never got anywhere. But what, what you created on the, in that area is, is very, very useful. And it also relates to, I'm on another panel in a couple hours with, with uh, Dick Thaler. The, uh, and uh, the, uh, what he's talking about is, the, what he wants us to talk about is the difficulty of selling ideas within, a, within a, a sport. And that's one of those things. You have reached the conclusion uh, by the use of the leverage index 
that the emphasis placed on, on uh, closers is greatly exaggerated relative to their true value. I agree with you. The, uh, I reached the same conclusion by different methods. The, uh, but you can't sell that idea within an organization. It's right. just, it, it's you just, you, we will eventually, eventually there will be enough people like us that will we'll eventually break through, but you know, in, 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 a, in, this, in a discussion or 10 discussions, not making any headway. Yeah, uh, as an example, like the, a tie game in the ninth inning is more crucial than a three-run lead in the ninth inning. But a manager is going to want to put his closer with a three-run lead. There's just like this feeling that you have to finish the game with your best pitcher. So like that's what like drives these decisions. So even when Bruce Suter and Bruce Gossage, you know, would pitch two or three innings coming in the seventh or eighth inning, they're still there in the ninth. So that's like what drives it. Uh, but, but to get back to the point about we never actually reached the point of full understanding, in that situation, I've always wondered whether uh, we, we've expect, when I was a kid, the, some teams had eight-man pitching staffs, right? Now it's 12 or 13. The, uh, uh, I've always wondered whether it might actually be a more effective use of, res of the roster space to have a, an old left-handed hitter who was really good to use as a pinch hitter in the situation where you're down by a run in the ninth inning because that's actually a high leverage situation too. Uh, it could be that if people understood the, the leverage index better, we would wind up with uh, a different roster allocation because that we w rather than using six relievers to protect leads, we'd use five relievers to protect leads and one to try to catch up. So we're actually going to talk about pitchers next, but I want to dig a bit deeper. Sorry, I didn't into mean it. That's OK. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, but I want to dig a bit deeper into the buy-in. You know, so you have this research. You have these ideas. You've done the work. You, know, you both worked for, for clubs um, you know, and have a lot of experience. What has worked in you know, translating your ideas within certain areas? And I know you said there will be scouts that are, you know, have pushback. You're never going to win them over. But how about for those people now, which is obviously a huge amount of people, that want to use the analytics to their advantage? Do you use a lot of visualizations? Is it written reports? Um, what does that look like from your experience to how you think it should look like? Uh, what's interesting is, uh, like I know we always said we start with a question. So there was one bit of research that actually didn't start with a question. We were looking for something else. Um, and then uh, I saw how batters were performing each time through the order. And then it was like pretty constant that they kept getting better and or pitchers getting worse each time through the order. So um, we didn't quite figure out the reason. We figured it's probably fatigue. Uh, it might be that the pitcher, you know, he's, uh, the, the batter's figuring him out by the second, third time. So we just published that in the book, and that was uh, 2006. And now people are talking about it as if it's like common knowledge that, yeah, obviously that's why they're pulling him after 18 batters because you don't want to see him the third time. So there's a lot of little things like that where, you know what, you didn't intend for it to like move the discussion. You just kind of found it and you published it. And then other people who are now reading, you know, stuff I wrote 15 years ago, they're kind of in an influential position in clubs. And now they're kind of like pushing things along. I think I'm more than 15 years behind you. But, yeah, uh, but that, that actually is, my answer to that question is, is what does it take, you ask what does it take to? Right, communicate, effectively communicate, communicate and get buy-in. What it takes is time. Uh, and Tom's example is per a perfect example of that. The, uh, uh, when you first publish that thing, it does, that sort of thing, it doesn't have any impact. Over 10 years later, more and more people come to understand it, and eventually it reaches the point at which it's self-evident. Uh, in fact, the most important things you ever discover in your life, you never get credit for because once you've <laughs> discovered them, they become self-evident. So nobody ever realizes that people didn't understand this. Right. A good example is like the catcher framing. Like everyone kind of like knew, like it's kind of important, but they didn't realize how important. That's really like what our job is, is no, we, we kind of know what the answer is, but we don't know the magnitude of it. And that's kind of like what we put a, sh a shine a line on it. 
-hmm. And the catcher framing now, it's like so commonplace that everyone just takes it for granted. But 15 years ago, no one was talking about it. And to get back to pitchers, I suppose, um, you know, talking about like the opt optimal allocation of money, what do you think are starting pitchers, you know, as opposed to position players in terms of how much they're paid? What's your opinion on that? Uh, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, I think that the teams are doing the right thing with starting pitchers. Uh, what's interesting with the shift with the, the, to more strikeouts is that with fewer batted balls in play, that means that the pitcher is involved more with more strikeout, it becomes more clear who the most talented pitchers are. So now if like a pitcher's got 30% of his batter's face being struck out, it's, it's, it's very easy to say, yeah, he's a fantastic pitcher. As opposed to like 30, 40 years ago when you wouldn't get those high strikeouts, it takes longer to figure out who are the best pitchers. How about as opposed to closers? Or different reliever, relieving pitchers? The, uh, um, it is, the pay scale for closers is probably probably too high for relative to other things uh, for reasons we discussed earlier. Right. My experience has been that when you start talking about how much baseball players get paid, I get into <laughs> trouble. So maybe okay. I... Okay. <laughs> how about more on just like the theory then, like closer by committee or different ways that are like maybe non-traditional ways to allocate pitching innings? Uh, so there, I, again, uh, it's probably more a question of like how to manage personalities. The, the gain that you have in trying to best use your pitchers, uh, you'll gain like a few runs maybe to a win. But if the relievers don't buy in, uh, their performance is going to suffer. So you take one step forward, but then you take on, on your theories, but you take 10 steps back on the implementation. So it doesn't really help anyone if no one buys in. So if the reliever really feels that he wants to come in based on the inning, not on the leverage, kind of hard to like push back on that. So you really have to know your pitchers. And how about like a four-man versus like a six-man rotation? I think you were alluding to that before. What do you think the, the next research questions will be as pitching you know, rules change and that position evolves? Um, the way that relievers are used has never reached or <coughs> approached an equilibrium. Uh, if, if, you, if you study the way that relievers are used in 1985 as opposed to 1975, or 75 as opposed to 65, or 65 as opposed to 55, or what year are we now? <laughs> uh, if, if, you, if you study the way that relievers are used in any 10-year in any period, you find that it has changed quite significantly in that 10-year period. And it every moment of it, people thought they were right. At every moment of it, people thought they had this figured out now. Nonetheless, it changed tremendously over the next 10 years because they didn't actually have it figured out. And we don't have it figured out now either. We're doing things now that are continuations of what we believed years ago, uh, but which we can see logically don't actually make that much sense. Uh, we switched from, and it's, it's a case of one decision not merging perfectly with the previous decision. About, in my lifetime, but not in the lifetime of people your age, they, they, we switched from a, a four-man rotation to a five-man rotation, and now some people are using six. But if you think about it, it's illogical to shorten the span in which your best pitchers, your strongest pitchers pitch from, from uh, uh, they used to be expected to pitch nine innings, and now it's, you know, five, uh, but continue to use them on a longer rotation. You, I can see doing either one of those, but I can't see doing both of those. The, uh, so if we're going to use pitchers throwing 70, what used to be starting pitchers throwing 70 innings, 70 pitches max, doesn't it actually make more sense to use like a three-man rotation? Uh, it, and the stress on the arm over the course of a season is not that great if you're throwing 70 pitches 55 times. The, uh, uh, what we haven't, so what I'm saying is that 10 years from now, we'll be smarter on this issue than we are now. Uh, but 10 years from now, again, people will think they've got it all figured out, <laughs> but we won't have. What do you think on that, Tom? Uh, no, I agree. Uh, Oh, you, have, you have 30 clubs, so you, all you really need is like one club to like start trying things. And if 
you know, you're a below 500 team, you're going to be more incentivized to like take a little bit more risk. So that's why I like the way the Rays approached it uh, like 10 years ago. They just they have limited resources, so they figured, well, let's try different ways, and you know, you really see the effect. That's why High and Bloom is going to be great with the Red Sox because it was part of that Rays system, and they were. It's very difficult for a rich organization to uh, to experiment and to try things because they can afford to buy. You know, you've, you've got it. <laughs> You've got a $1 million solution to a problem or a $20 million solution to a problem. The rich organization is always going to use the $20 million solution to the problem. But it's great to have Mr. Bloom with the Red Sox because he understands the value of that trying that $1 million solution to the problem. But he now is with an organization that has resources, and the combination will work out great. So selfishly, I'm going to ask you kind of a Toronto question. Um, related to obviously a guy who did a bat flip in our in our stadium and you know had a big moment, um, and I just saw he's trying to pitch as well. So talking about you know two way players, I think there's new rules about that as well. Um, what do you think about position players pitching, and where do you see that evolving um, as the rules change and as you know the sport demands different requirements? Well, someone like Michael Lorenzen is like a good example of a good two way player. Um, He's a relief pitcher, so not a starter. He's a bench player, not uh, on the regular uh, starting lineup. So he's the kind of guy where uh, he's incentivized to really like try to show off as much as he can to be able to really contribute to his team. So I would expect more guys like that who are on the periphery, uh, who are just trying to stay in the game, and it's going to help uh, the club to be able to you know, leverage that. It's, a, it's almost as if you're adding an extra player to the roster. As well then, I know we're getting a bit close to our questions, so I wanted to know for a lot of the students out there, what are some research questions that you think in you know, this year that could be answered or could be looked at um, you know, from a, a group of very smart individuals that are all hungry to do more in baseball? What is some kind of low-lying fruit? Uh, sorry. You Go ahead. Okay. Uh, if you're into like StatCast data, uh, we publish a lot on uh, Savant. And uh, just focusing on uh, exit velocity and launch, uh, launch angle, uh, you can get a lot of tidbits uh, there. A lot of people are just focused on you know, what does that specific speed and angle uh, lead to. But really, the question you should be asking is, what does it tell me about the player? So it's really the focus between trying to describe a play uh, and describing the player. So, uh, you can identify the player involved, but you want to know the influence of the player uh, on that particular play. So one thing that I found uh, just last week is batters who hit balls over 100 miles an hour at like 45 degrees and higher. So that's um, a pop-up, and it's an out 98% of the time. But hitters who do that ends up being uh, the best hitters in the league. And the reason that's, that's true is because it takes a tremendous amount of power to hit a ball over 100 miles an hour at, at that kind of a launch angle. So that's why if you focus more on what does it tell you about the player as opposed to that particular play, you're going to be able to find some insights. Now, uh, there's an expression, an old, old expression. That's a major league pop-up right. uh, where you're in a minor league game and somebody hits the ball a mile into the sky and they say that's a major league pop-up. And that that's, relates exactly what you were just talking about, because uh, you, can't, you can't believe how high David Ortiz could hit a pop-up. Uh, and, you know, he's just bigger and stronger than everybody else, and he had a fantastic bat speed, so when he missed a little bit, the ball would go two miles in the air. The, uh, um, I don't know if this answers your question, Megan, the, uh, but it, this, is, this, is the, this is the honest answer. The, the best thing to research is to find what you don't know. And the key to... What the key to growing understanding is not intelligence, it's humility. If, if, you, if you realize that you don't actually understand the world, that you don't know everything, that there's a lot you cannot understand, then you, 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 you eventually can train yourself to see the world not in terms of what you do understand, but in terms of what you don't understand. And once you train yourself to see the world in terms of what you do not understand, then there are research questions everywhere. It's like you, you, you grow up, it's human instinct 
to try to see the world in terms of the things you've been taught and the things you, you understand. But if you can, it's like a secret gate over there. If you can get through that gate, all of a sudden you're in a gold mine of research questions where they're everywhere because you realize you don't understand a lot of stuff. So there's a lot of work to be done in this field is what you're saying. The goalpost is moving yeah, farther and farther. So what do you think baseball will look like in 2040? The, uh, we have to vault into the future. There, there, there's an optimistic answer and, and a pessimistic answer. And I, I won't give you the pessimistic answer because it's too obvious. The optimistic <laughs> answer is that we start realizing that we, it's, not, it's not an option to improve the pace of play. It's a requirement. We have to do something here. Uh, and if we don't start taking that more seriously, you know, God bless the commissioner, but he keeps talking about doing these pace of play things. And finally, we're doing one thing this year that will actually improve the pace of play, which is the reliever thing. Uh, but the other stuff we talk about is just, are you kidding me? You really think that's going to solve the problem? The, uh, uh, the, uh, so. Uh, one of the interesting things will be fielder alignments. We're all, we've always grown up with uh, the four infielders, three outfielders, and recently, like within the last five years, it's like, okay, let's maybe try to move the, the infielders over so we have the shift. Uh, but teams are also experimenting with four outfielders. Uh, and now imagine you have kind of like, like uh, two outfielders, two rovers, and uh, three infielders. So there's going to be like some experimenting uh, like that. So I think there's going to be a lot of trying to figure out some angles. How about media and like the digital product? How do you think that will look like in you know, another 20 years? Uh, I can't even imagine like five years from now. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, we can jump right into the questions then. Um, do you think a talent staff should consist of more scouts or analysts? What is that optimal maybe mix of scout and analyst? We're not going to make scouts obsolete for the reason I was talking about a minute ago. There's so many things we don't know and so many things we don't understand uh, that there are a lot of things you just can't collect uh, information about by you know, tracking on-field data. Uh, the, uh, 15 years ago with the Red Sox, we signed a player that everybody loved. He was a high school kid out of Georgia, and we paid him a lot of money. And who would have guessed that a high school kid from a small town in Georgia would come into the game with a cocaine problem, right? The, uh, uh, unless you, you're not going to find that with analytics. You've you got to have a scout there who has been to his home who can make a guess. Right. I mean, the scouts know what they're doing, and we don't need the scout to have a stopwatch to check out a guy's speed to first base. Uh, so that's time that he could be spent doing something else. So that's really what we're doing is that you know, you, you'll always need the scouts. They're like a lifeblood of, of data that you just can't get elsewhere. Um, you just need to get rid of the things that that's, they're not giving like something uh, specific from their skills and uh, you know, push that over to something else and then they can really focus on doing what they want to do. And there's a question too about uh, baseball front offices and their evolution and their use of analytics. So what is any pushback that you've seen or had experiences with and how did you overcome that? From my experience, there's never been any pushback. I mean, anything that you hear, like from the media, that you know it's scouts versus stats. I've never experienced that. Everyone is like they're all in the same room. They all want to do the same thing. They all want to figure out the same answer. Exactly, and that's right. I, I never had. I got along better with the scouts than I did the other <laughs> front office guys. The uh, uh, and it's because we we have the same view of the world. I know, and they know. We don't have this all figured out. You know, that, you know, they, could, they could pick the 50 best players coming out of college, and I could pick the be 50 best players, and we'd both be wrong on 40 of them. <laughs> Fair. Is there one specific thing you wish baseball organizations would buy into? It's uh, a good question. Uh, there are some things I wish they'd buy out of. <laughs> the, uh, uh, and my number one thing would be you know, I, I don't object to mascots. I like mascots. I, would, I wouldn't, I don't object, I wouldn't, you know. We have a great have, mascot in hockey, Gritty. Yeah. He's like super popular. <laughs> the, uh, you can have cheerleaders at the game, I wouldn't care. The, um, uh, but the music playing 
so loud you can't talk to the guy in the seat next to you. That drives me crazy. So if we could get guys to get the teams to buy out of <laughs> we need constant music, that would be good. I'm totally with you. I, I just can't stand that blasting music. And uh... How about within organizations, though? Is there something that they do that you just think is like, you know, not in a bad way, yeah. but just, you know, maybe you could change, really? Uh, maybe the, the focus on the batting order. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, like, theories about it, uh, but you also need to know about the players. Um, like, for example, we wanted, when I was working for the Mariners, uh, we wanted each row to bat second because it was just so much more natural for, for him. And he gave uh, pushback, and we couldn't figure out why. And we learned that in Japan, being a leadoff hitter is a high honor. It's like being a cleanup hitter here. So to Ichiro, batting second, which would be really good, is actually, uh, to his view, a demotion. So you really have to you know, be aware that as much as you, know, you want to help the club, you really got to understand like, the players as well. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, here's a good one, too, on pitching. And I think we kind of talked around this, but the Rays have used an opener uh, for their games. Mets are talking about doing it. Is this a good strategy, and how does it affect the overall strategy for teams? Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely uh, like it because, you know, the focus should be on, like I said, uh, up to 18 batters faced. Uh, there's going to be pushback eventually based on the allocation of wins. So, like, the Rays have uh, Ryan uh, Yarbrough, who's the headliner, the pitcher who pitches after the, the opener. Uh, he's got a 22-5 record uh, as a relief pitcher in, in 180 innings. Uh, so that's, like, a, a big incentive for pitchers to want to do that. And uh, Ryan Stanek, who's the opener, he's, like, 0-3 with 56 starts. Uh, so you really have to be aware that, you know what, it's going to work, but just make sure that, you know, the pitchers are buying into it as well. Do you have any thoughts on that, Bill? Uh, it's a, perhaps a small thing, but one thing is uh, uh, I, I could never get the organization to understand that if you're missing ball players, the place you're missing them is small schools. Uh, and when you, you tell a group of scouts that uh, if you're missing a player anywhere, it's a guy who's going to uh, you know, playing college ball but not at the highest levels, and when you say that, the response you always get is, yeah, he hit 560, but we don't know what, what the level of competition was. Yes, you do. It's actually not that hard a problem. The, uh, uh, so that would be, there, there are a lot of things in an, in an organization that you just, you know this idea isn't going anywhere, so I'm not going to waste my time trying to sell it today. I'll try to sell it for 10 years from now. Uh, but the... Uh, I mean, that's just one small example that we're doing, we're still doing a lot of things that aren't optimal, mm -hmm. uh, and you try to move the needle if you can. How about playoff teams uh, tending to now use starters as relievers? Do you think this can be done in the regular season? What would that look like? Well, the difference in the playoffs is that they have so many off days, so they can really experiment and, you know, maximize using their best pitchers and, you know, the guys in the back of the, in the, back of the bullpen, you know, they can minimize their role. So that's one way, you know, that you kind of like can experiment. And you also know that, you know, there's an end of season. So you don't have to worry too much about making sure they're still available for the week after. How have analytics changed the way contracts are negotiated? You know, with more data out there, we can quantify. We don't have to talk about pure money, but we can, you know, quantify more things about the players and uh, well, have more comparables. Going back to this contratop in which I found myself a couple of years ago, there were players saying, uh, uh, we don't like being treated as, as commodities. Uh, but what you don't get is the whole reason that you're paid $30 million a year is that people think of you as a commodity. If they thought of this as a salary, nobody would ever pay you $30 million a year. You only paid that amount of money because uh, people think of it as a commodity. So analytics has transferred a lot of money from other resources into the purchase of talent, which isn't necessarily a great thing. I mean, there are negative consequences to society of having, um, of having inequitable distribution of income. Uh, and people generally understand that. I mean, 
Bernie's done good with that idea, right? Uh, and but but in in baseball, we're still hung up on this idea that a uh, that that this this allocation of resources in which we uh, maybe I've said enough. <laughs> Tom. Uh, What's, uh, what's interesting with the analytics is that uh, once uh, Winds Above Replacement was out there, War on uh, Baseball Reference and Fangraphs, uh, which are the two sites that all the clubs would go to, uh, it kind of became like this central point where there's like an, an agreement that this is how to value players. And now once both sides kind of agree on it, it's a lot easier for both sides to you know, value players similarly. So now when you see the, the free agent contracts that come out, they're fairly consistent with the way you know, war works and uh, the projections based off that. So when you're talking about war or other metrics, who is one of the best players that no one is talking about? Uh, I don't have a good answer yet. No? What do you think? Who's, who's a player that you know, people should know, but maybe if you're outside the baseball sphere, just doesn't get you know, the screen time that some of the big superstars do. Well, related to your previous question, uh, and, and to Tom's answer is, there used to be guys like that, but since we have good analytical systems now, you get attention pretty quickly. Uh, the, uh, it, it, I think that one of the functions of systems like war is that they direct attention to the best players in a, I mean, it used to be a guy who hit, the guy who hit 320 was a star, and the guy who hit 40 homers was a star, but the guy who hit, at 280 with 30 homers was you know, kind of under the radar. Not anymore. Right. I mean, what, what it does is it, it brings to light these players a lot faster. Like Kevin Kiermaier is a fantastic fielder, uh, so he deserves to be in the starting lineup. But let's say 15 years ago, that could have been Andy Chavez. And Andy Chavez was a fourth outfielder. So I think that's what analytics does is it really highlights their talent level faster in a more focused manner, and everyone kind of buys into it. Now we have a question too on intangibles. How can we measure them? And do you think that there were, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, you know, areas where they said, no way, you can never quantify that. And now it's just, like you said, commonplace. Well, in, intangibles only matters to the point that it manifests itself at some point. And because it doesn't make sense to have an intangible that doesn't translate into wins or doesn't translate into better performance for other players that'll also translate into wins. So eventually it comes down to something tangible. So the question is, do we need to figure out how he got to that point? Do we need to differentiate uh, Dustin Pedroia from Gary Sheffield in terms of like intangibles? Or can we just look at their actual output and realize that, you know, they got there however they got there with whatever their talent is? The, uh, uh, your question is an oxymoron, you realize that. How, how do you measure <laughs> that it? That wasn't my question. <laughs> I got it from the crowd. So. All right, wherever you are. The, the, uh, how do you measure intangibles? You can't, if you could measure it, it wouldn't be an intangible. It's, 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 it's in the definition. <laughs> Those things matter enormously. In a front office, you worry more about the things you can't measure than the things you can because they're always a little bit out of control. And uh, sometimes they're swamped by the tangibles, but in many cases they aren't. I mean, it's still true that the 25th man on your roster is always the nicest guy you ever met. And the re it's really hard. I mean, these guys are together from February 10th till the end of the season, which is, you know, a good team. It's the middle of October. And, and they're together every day, and they eat together, and they travel together, and they stay in hotels together. And, and, and if you're a jackass, it really hurts. Uh, so if you're not calling Gary Sheffield a jackass, but if, <laughs> if you're Gary Sheffield, doesn't matter. But if you're the 25th guy on a roster, it matters a lot. So I work in tech, and I'm going to violate some of the you know, buzzwords that you probably should never say. But I think a couple of these questions are alluding to you know, computer vision, AI, machine learning. How do you think you know, the evolution of all of these ways to automate different you know, data collection and interpretation, how do you think that will change baseball in the short term, long term? Uh, so one of the things that uh, we've got is uh, trying to track players they're in the 3D, so they're actual skeletal tracking. So imagine you take the picture and then you just look at uh, his arm, his, uh, his joints, just 
every part of his body uh, pitch by pitch. And then you can see that, you know what, maybe we're going to see when a pitcher tires, maybe his elbow drops, you know, three inches. Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of uh, opportunity for people who are into like that kind of thing to be able to just focus on the pitcher's uh, skeletal frame and see if that's going to somehow match up to uh, like his contributions during the, during the game. And how do you think that might change the role of like a data scientist or, you know, different positions and organizations? Will it move towards more of the, you know, engineering technology side or will there still be, you know, people that kind of cross do both? I, I think it's just going to keep adding. So like whatever, whoever it is that works in the club now, they're doing like contributions that are valuable. Um, these other people, they're just going to come in and just keep adding. So the front office is just going to keep growing uh, more and more. And following up on that, one of the questions I'm asked most often is how do you break into baseball? And the answer is you have to know something that is useful to the team. And it doesn't really matter what it is. Anything you know, anything, any area that you master that is useful to a team, they're willing to hire you. But if you, a general, the more general your education is, the less use you are uh, to a potential team because, you know, we got a lot of smart guys anyway. We need somebody who knows something that we don't know. And if you want to join a club, my suggestion is always just start a blog. Start a blog, write your research. So all the clubs are looking for everything that's out there. Uh, so if you make any kind of impact, someone's going to notice. Someone else is going to notice. Eventually, I might tweet about it, and then other clubs are going to see that. And then you're going to get hired uh, very quickly. So in, in uh, baseball, it's actually taken a little bit of time to do that. But when you look at hockey, uh, you know, practically everyone within six months that publishes something novel got hired by a club to the point that all, all the data that we used to rely on, it's like not there anymore. It's, you wouldn't even know uh, those sites even had existed two years ago. I was trying to recruit people to come to hockey last night. So anyone in here <laughs> that wants to work in hockey, we have space, always growing. What's one last closing remark or tip that you, you know, wish you knew when you started um, in this career? Uh, I would say just always just keep uh, sharing. Uh, the community is fantastic. Everyone just, most people are just there to you know, learn and appreciate and they just want to enjoy the game. They're, they're not looking to work for a club. So just keep sharing your work and uh, everyone's going to enjoy it and you, you should get satisfaction just, just on that. And that's all I was doing like up until uh, the book uh, came out. The whole point was just, you know, I found this interesting. I found other people found it interesting and we just like created a community and you know, it was fantastic. Bill, I'll give you the last word. Uh, that, that's a really good answer actually. But <clears throat> what I would say is uh, it is the nature of analysis to drill down on smaller and smaller questions, right? Uh, and we were talking about the way you move from one question to another to another. But what that tends to result in is focusing on smaller questions. I mean, you answer the question this big and, oh, there's a question this big that's left and then there's a question this big that's left. Eventually, you're, you're looking for tiny, tiny, tiny little advantages. What I would tell you is uh, learn to focus on the bigger questions. Uh, what, I, what I wish for our field is that there was more focus on the bigger things that we don't know rather than the smaller things we don't know. Great. Anything else to add, Tom, to that? Uh, I think see you shaking your head. No, no. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Well, great. Without both of you here, I'm sure, you know, I wouldn't be here and in a career in sports. So I appreciate both of your wisdom today. And uh, thank you from everyone here for sharing what you know. Thank you. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.